This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Listeners, my name is Michael Helsinger, and if this is your first time tuning into Murky Waters, this podcast is about interviewing shark scientists from around the world to learn about these fascinating animals. If you're a surfer or a diver or an ocean user, this episode may be of particular interest for you. We dive into some topical subjects, discussing shark deterrence and how they are tested, as well as white shark cage diving and the research behind wildlife tourism, and finally, the recent and the big collaborative study about the overlap between fisheries and shark populations in the high seas. The guest today is Dr Charlie Huvenirs, who is an Associate Professor at Flinders University in Australia. Charlie is an internationally acclaimed expert on this topic. In his research, he's tested multiple shark deterrents, as well as researching the different factors of white shark cage diving off the Neptune Islands in South Australia. So without further ado, let's sink our teeth into this interview with Charlie. Hello, Charlie. Great to have you on the podcast today. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Could you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners what you and your shark research lab are currently working on at Flinders University? I'm uh, Charlie Huvenius, and I've been at Flinders University for about 10 years now, and I lead the Southern Shark Ecology Group at the university. And currently, most of our work is focused on the effect of wildlife tourism as shark bite mitigation measures. And wildlife tourism, is this cage diving, like cage diving with white sharks? That's uh, where I do most of my research, obviously being based in Adelaide in South Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, We have access to um, the white shark cage diving industry of Port Lincoln, uh, Mm -hmm. but I also do a bit of research at other locations and more broadly on wildlife tourism in general. And I just wanted to ask how you started a career and why you started a career in studying sharks? Actually, my interest in sharks started quite young. I think I was about maybe 11 years old, yeah. just uh, finishing my uh, primary school, and uh, I had to do a presentation on an animal. And uh, I think it was my mom who suggested to do it on sharks and bought me a book for the presentation. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting how half the book was really just stating how little we knew about sharks. And that kind of sparked my interest. And um, I bought another book to learn a bit more and another book. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just got interested in that. And really, the, the fact that we didn't know so anything really about sharks was quite interesting. And we know at a point where we do know uh, a lot more about sharks, but there's still a, a lot that we don't know too. Absolutely. I want to talk a bit about the studies that you're doing with wildlife tourism. The white shark cage diving has become quite scrutinized What research have you been a part of surrounding cage diving and what were the intentions of your research? What were you trying to find? 
So a lot of the research that we're doing is focused on looking at the impact of wildlife tourism or uh, the wild shark cage diving industry on wild sharks, but also on the rest of the ecosystem. So we're not just focused on wild sharks. We also do work on some of the non-focal or non-target species. Mm-hmm. And the research that we're doing is very broad. It relates to the ecology or biology of the animals, but also in terms of the socioeconomic of the industry as well. For example, I've had some PhD students looking at the social benefits of the wild shark cage diving industry, which showed that the conservation behavior of the tourist was actually increasing as a result of participating in the wildlife cage diving industry. So people there were interviewed before and after the experience. And uh, after the experience, they were more likely to be engaged in uh, shark conservation compared to before joining the experiment. And this was work by Kirin Apps through collaboration at Southern Cross University. We've also looked at the economics of the cage diving industry, and we showed that that industry is worth about $15 million to the region. And that's both in terms of direct value, so the money that people spend directly to the industry, but there's also a proportion that what we consider of indirect expenditure. So one of the questions we asked the tourists was whether they would have come to the region if it wasn't for the cage diving industry. Yep. And what we found, quite interestingly, is that more than 80% of the people undertaking cage diving would not have come to Port Lincoln or the Air Peninsula if it wasn't for the cage diving industry. But while they are in that region, they don't just go cage diving. They might also go swimming with sea lions. They might do a a wine tour. They might go and enjoy the uh, the national parks of the region. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole bunch of other activities and other expenditure that would not have gone to the region if it wasn't for the cage diving industry. And and that indirect expenditure Mm -hmm. was actually worth as much as the direct value Diving so we've got about seven and a half million directly from the cage diving yeah. and another seven and a half million from this indirect expenditure in the region that would not have occurred if it wasn't for the cage diving industry. For the wild shark perspective, we are working with the South Australian government as well as with the industry to monitor the activity of the cage diving industry in relation to the residency of the wild shark. Mm-hmm. So in South Australia, the interest and in the amount of cage diving taking place increased by quite a bit, but 10 years ago, around 2007. And so the number of days that operators were at the Neptune Islands pretty much doubled, and they were pretty much a cage diving boat nearly every day back then. At the same time, we realized that the amount of time that the sharks were spending at the Neptune Islands also seemed to have increased. So mm-hmm. there was a bit of a correlation between the intensity of the cage diving with the increase of residency with the sharks. So the industry, scientists, and the government worked together towards trying to reduce that residency Mm -hmm. back to the baseline levels. And what Mm -hmm. the government put a few more regulations to the industry. So they limited the number of licenses to three. Mm -hmm. They also limited the number of burling licenses to two. And they also limited the number of days that the operators were allowed to be on site. On top of that, we also Mm -hmm. started monitoring the residency of the sharks to check whether the regulation made a difference 
or not. Yep. And what we found is that after a few years of this regulation being put in place, the residency of the sharks went back down to what we call baseline levels or to what the residency was before the industry increase in intensity. So yep. we're able to, I guess, manage the residency of the shark through those regulation and through the collaboration between industry, government, and scientists. So the baseline that you were talking about there, that was the baseline before that increase, or was this a baseline before any white shark cage diving? It's a good question. It was the baseline before the increase. So mm-hmm. it was a baseline from memory from about 2001 and 2002 compared to what the residency was after the increase around 2010 and 2011. It's tricky to get these values before wildlife tourism starts yeah. because there typically isn't uh, that data available before the tourism is starting because we obviously kind of guess where those tourisms will take place. Exactly. So we don't have a true before mm-hmm. information or data, but we've got this ability to compare what the residency of the shark is in relation to the number of days that the cage diving industry operated. Yep. Has there been any studies from your lab group or any studies that you know of, of white sharks potentially habituating to boats? I'm sure you heard this a thousand times about how people believe in fishermen and a lot of surfers. It's why it's quite controversial is that people do believe sharks are habituating themselves to the boat and associating people and boats as a source of food. Yeah, I mean, we do get this question quite a lot, as you yeah. can imagine. It, it is very controversial, and I think mm-hmm. we also have to be really careful answering these kind of questions as well, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is something that we should be mindful of. And, you know, whenever we're talking about human safety, we obviously have to be really careful and sure that our activities is not jeopardizing people's safety. With regards to sharks becoming conditions to boat, Actually, is currently no data that shows that sharks are actually getting conditioned to boat at Neptune Islands or in other locations with mm-hmm. white sharks. There are, however, the opposite trend that we have seen but not have been able to collect data yet. So what I mean is what we call habituation. Yeah. So instead of the shark becoming conditioned or associated with the boat, they become habituated, which means that they're losing their response to the stimuli. Mm -hmm. So when the shark, let's say, first arrive at the Neptunes, they might be attracted by the burly and the bait being used by the operators. Mm -hmm. But because one of the regulations is that the operators cannot let the sharks take the bait, Mm -hmm. because there is no reward and because the sharks do not get the bait enough, they become less likely to respond because... The, the previous time they responded, there was actually no reward, no benefit. I know that a lot of people would say, well, that's not true. I've seen plenty of white sharks taking the baits. And it's true that they can at times be a bit too fast and be a bit sneaky and manage to get the bait. Yeah. But the vast majority of the time, they actually don't get it. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a bias and a misconception that they get the bait all the time. And that's because you know when people go on the boat they're typically not going to be putting on social media a shark swimming around. They're going to be putting that one time of the whole day or that one of the two times in the mm-hmm. whole day when the shark took the bait because it looks more impressive. Exactly. So there's a bias in believing that these wild sharks are getting the bait much more often than they actually do get the bait. So that conditioning is less likely to happen because these sharks aren't getting the bait and we instead are getting the sharks 
to seemingly become habituated into leasing response. But we actually don't have any data to really see if that's actually the case or not. But we mm-hmm. just deployed some receivers in a fine scale array that will allow us to actually test that question. Oh, cool. I can't wait to see the results of that. In your personal opinion, do you think the conservation and the economic benefits from white shark cage diving are worth it for the potential risk? Well, we, we're actually seeing that the effect of the cage diving industry on the white sharks is relatively limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've also has a PhD student, Lauren Meyer, who just submitted her thesis mm-hmm. that looked at the feeding ecology of white sharks and whether the cage diving industry was was affecting the diet of the shark. And we did not see any differences in the diet of sharks that were interacting with the cage diving industry or samples that were collected from other locations around Australia. So the cage diving industry did not seem to change the diet of the shark. That's either in terms of the bait, like we couldn't get any evidence of a a large amount of bait being eaten in the diet of the sharks, mm-hmm. or also any reduction of, of natural prey item. So from a diet perspective, there was no real differences. Mm-hmm. From a residency perspective, we've managed to reduce any effect that the, the industry had, but that doesn't mean that the industry has no effect at all. Yeah. So we, I think we do have to be really careful in, in what we're doing, but if we have the right information, we can actually manage those effects with the right regulation we can minimize those effects and it's up to individuals to de- make the decision as to whether these effects are justified or not. On this topic of human and shark interactions and white sharks, could we talk about shark repellents? Because I know you've done a study looking at the shark shield, if I'm right. Yeah, we've done a, a range of different studies, actually, not just one on a range of different shark deterrents. Yep. Uh, I think over the years, we've tested maybe six or seven different products. Oh, could you tell us about the Shark Shield and the other products you've tested? So how you tested it and whether they worked or not? So tested some of the Shark Shield products. Uh, and actually nowadays the company name changed to Ocean Guardian, mm-hmm. powered by Shark Shield technology. Yep. Uh, and over the years we've tested um, three of their products in different situations Sometimes we tested them in South Australia. We've tested some in South Africa, both cases on white sharks. And more recently, we've also tested one of their products on black tip reef sharks in French Polynesia. Mm-hmm. Alongside those, we also tested some other electric devices. We've also tested some of the magnets. And we also tested a wax that is also intended to put on surfboard and to repel sharks. And what we found is that there is some of these devices are not as efficient as advertised, yep. um, but some of these devices can significantly affect the behavior of sharks and white sharks or black tip reef sharks and mm-hmm. reduce the likelihood of the sharks uh, biting an intended prey. So, in both South Africa, South Australia, and also in Indonesia, the rate of, of sharks biting the bait that we were presenting was reducing or declining once the deterrent were turned on. Mm-hmm. So the deterrent reduced the ability of the sharks to get it. The sharks were still coming quite close. And even when the deterrents are turned on, they were you know, coming within within a meter. And, yeah. and sometimes they were still able to take the bait. So it's certainly not 100% foolproof, but it's certainly an effect. And it did reduce the chance of the shark getting the bait. The sharks typically took longer to take the bait. Mm-hmm. And the shark, on average, 
get further away as well because of the deterrence being being active. Was this just specifically the shark shield or is this all across most of the deterrents? Based on our study, the uh, the product from the ocean government were showing the largest differences. Why do you think they were showing the largest differences? Was it because I'm not sure the amount of the electric signal they're putting out there or is there a, an understanding of why they were more affected than the other deterrents? It's, it's a good question. It is quite interesting. Some of it, we, we have a bit of an idea of what might happen. In, in other cases, we don't entirely know. Mm-hmm. So if you compare the Ocean Guardian to some of the other devices that transmit an electric pulse, mm-hmm. you would kind of assume that if an electric pulse does work well, you would think that all electric pulse, as long as it's strong enough, should work. And that's kind of what I was expecting and in a way also hoping for. Yeah. But we actually were quite surprised to see that there were some differences in the response between different electric pulses. But these pulses that we tested were different in many different ways in terms of the, the strength, in terms of frequency, in terms of, of type, whether it was an alternative current or direct current. So we don't actually really know which of those characteristics meant that one pulse worked and the other one didn't. Obviously, something within those characteristics is different enough to make one of those working and, and the other one not have the same amount of effect. In the case of the magnets, what we found is that, again, while sharks have an extremely sensitive electromagnetic receptors, being mm-hmm. the Ampulla of Lorenzini, yep. that is typically used at very close range. And they need absolutely huge magnets to really repel sharks from a significant distance. Yep. So yeah, it's possible that the magnet repels sharks within, you know, let's say 20 centimeters, but again, if the person is wearing a magnet around his or her ankle or his or her uh, wrist, you know, if you've got a 20 or even 30 centimeter radius, it doesn't provide a huge amount of protection. And in a realistic situation, it would not provide sufficient protection to cover a whole body. Unless you had absolutely huge magnet, that would not be very practical. <laughs> not at all. Not with your scuba gear, your surf gear, any of your water activities. No, you'd end up sinking a lot. <laughs> you'd be drowning. <laughs> That'd be your primary concern. I want to talk about, of course, just like the white shark habituation argument, there's a lot of people and lots of people ask me whether the shark mm-hmm. shields, these products attract sharks to a specific distance and then they repel them with the effect on their ampullae of Lorenzini. Do you have any understanding of that? Is that a myth or has there been science to prove otherwise? We tried to look at that and we couldn't find any evidence of sharks being attracted to the devices when it was turned on before being uh, repelled when they became closer. But it's actually quite difficult to test and we're hoping to get another project that would look at that more specifically. But at the same time, I really think that it's unlikely to attract sharks from a distance because counterintuitively, that current, that electric pulse is actually decreasing very, very quickly underwater in salt water. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the reasons why it's not that efficient all the time. And that's why sharks are still capable of of being within a meter, Mm -hmm. is that even these really strong fields decline exponentially so that after a meter or two meters, there's hardly any field, any strength left. So that's why the sharks would be happy to be within two meters. Within a meter, they'll start feeling it and, and maybe not liking it so much. And within half a meter, they really, really don't like it. But 
you know, as soon as you go as far as maybe 10, 20 meters, the field would not be powerful enough for the sharks to actually uh, have any behavioral response, uh, especially not uh, being attracted from, from distances. So I don't think it's likely to happen. In theory, it's not impossible. You know, they do use that sense to detect prey items. But again, they use that sense at very, very close range. Mm -hmm. So if it was any kind of attraction, it would happen when the shark is already really, really close. And as soon as he went closer, we would repel. So it's not a case of sharks being attracted from hundreds of meters because you're wearing one of these devices. It's mm -hmm. not even a case of sharks being attracted from 20 or 30 meters away from because you're wearing one of these devices. Mm -hmm. If anything, it'd be from very close range. And again, we're not even sure that it is the case, but that's why we want to actually do a, a research project on this because we are aware that many people are concerned by it. Yep. I just get that question all the time, so I wanted to get your opinion, and I think you answered that really well. <laughs> Thanks. I'm sure just with all the other sensors that sharks use, it'll be the last thing they'd be relying on if it's so weak at a distance. That's right. They indeed would have many other means to uh, to be able to detect you know, people potential prey if they really want to mm -hmm. i want to ask about the waxing on surfboards is that right you're talking about a specific wax that you could put on your surfboard mm -hmm. what was this wax what made it a repellent the wax has ingredients that has been shown to be deterring other terrestrial species and the idea was that the, the smell that would come from the wax would hopefully also deter sharks and you know there's some potential behind the ideas i guess it all depends on what ingredients would be included and, and what other potential ingredients could be incorporated in the future. Mm -hmm. But the, the current mix that we tested did not seem to affect uh, the shark behavior. Obviously, we need to make sure that the, the sharks can smell the wax as well. So mm -hmm. we are applying a, a new layer of wax before every single trial. We also made sure that the wax was underwater because as a surfer, when you, when you sit on your board, your mm -hmm. board is underwater. So, you know, there's no yeah. point having the wax, the wax just sitting in air. But yeah, even we were applying new fresh uh, layer of wax before every trial, had the wax on the water. Mm -hmm. It did not seem to be sharks, unfortunately. How about black and white wetsuits? Because this is something that's come out, I guess, the last three, four years. And people will be wearing black and white wetsuits and also the straps on the board. I know it's a product, but then I've seen just surfers in general put this coloration on their boards, believing that it could be a repellent. Yeah, and again, it's got potential. And mm -hmm. I guess the trick with all of these repellents, a lot of them has potential, whether they do work or not is a bit unknown. And that's why I think that scientific research is really important because mm -hmm. I can see how it can be very hard for members of the general public to know which one works or not and to read between the manufacturer's claim. So just for example, the idea of the wetsuit and the stripe pattern has been sold by some companies as a deterrent because there's black and white striping is mimicking a sea snake, which is mm -hmm. highly, highly venomous. Yep. And the trick is that some shark species will actually feed on these sea snakes and, and tiger sharks have been known to be feeding on sea snakes. So yeah. that theory or the, the, the idea of repelling sharks from mimicking a venomous uh, animal is actually incorrect. However, what it can do mm -hmm. is disrupting the outline of a person. Yep. And that's actually what the idea of these wetsuits are, the same as the, the one that kind of camouflage it, yeah, yep. is to make the person wearing it less detectable by sharks. There's been some science behind it that do show that depending on what patterns you have, if you can disrupt some of this pattern, in theory, it can make a person less detectable to sharks. Yep. Unfortunately, 
hasn't been any extensive field testing of those uh, patterns. Uh, there's been a, a bit done by University of Western Australia, mm-hmm. and there is promising results. But I think that a bit more work can be done to test it on some broader range of species in different situations mm-hmm. to really look at whether it can actually reduce the likelihood of being bitten or not. All these repellents, when they're testing, is it mainly the three most considered dangerous species? So your tigers, bull sharks, and white sharks. Are they the species that you guys are doing most of tests? I know you talked about some of the species you were doing tests on. And did you also see a variation between each individual species? Yeah, so, I mean, we've typically done a lot of our testing on white sharks, and that's mm-hmm. obviously because of easy access to them uh, at the Neptune Islands, but also yeah. because they are responsible for the most fatal shark bites as well. So there's some reason for that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, at the same time, there are other species that, that can bite humans in, in rare instances. Mm-hmm. Um, but even smaller species like black deep reef sharks, they're obviously not considered to be dangerous. But in some situation, if there's maybe some feeding, for example, yeah. they have also been known to bite sharks as well. So it is important to test those devices on a broad range of species. We've started with, I guess, the ones believed to be responsible for the most fatal shark bites. Mm-hmm. But we're actually now starting to work on some of the other species. I'm just about to go in a couple of weeks to work with people from Union Island to test it on bull sharks. And uh, we also want to do some more of that testing on other species. And it's actually a really interesting question because Mm -hmm. doing some preliminary testing in aquarium, we're seeing a much bigger difference between species than I expected. Mm -hmm. After having done it on white sharks and played around with uh, black sharks and also gray reef sharks, we're seeing a lot of big reaction. Mm -hmm. But then I've played around with some of the other species in, in some of the public aquarium and noticed that other species especially some of the benthic species like, for example, rays or sawfish, mm-hmm. were actually not responding as much as anticipated. So there is a big variation between species, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of justify the need to test it across a broad range of species if possible. I want to take a, a different turn and talk about a large study that you were recently part of, and it was published in the science journal Nature. It was called Global Spatial Risk Assessment of Sharks Under the Footprint of Fisheries. This was a massive study. It was 150 scientists, and you guys were looking at the overlap between fisheries in areas like the high seas with shark distribution. Could you tell us a bit about this study? Yeah, you're right. It was a a huge study and a lot of people were involved in. And I I did hear from a previous uh, guest, Melissa, that she she did mention that study as well. Yeah, 150 people. I think it was about 26 different organizations involved, Mm -hmm. combining about 2,000 sharks, tags and tracks. Mm -hmm. And this was led by people from the Marine Biological Association in England. And Mm -hmm. they did a fantastic job combining all of that data doing this great study of a global assessment of the overlap between shark distribution with fisheries. It was a great study to be part of, and it really highlighted a couple of things. You could look at which species overall were more vulnerable or were overlapping the most with fisheries from the high seas. Mm -hmm. You can also look at which species, which region of the world was the area where they were most exposed to to fishing. Mm -hmm. And you can also look at areas across the globe as to which areas 
has a big overlap between fisheries and a large number of species or which areas actually is the opposite where you've got a lot of species that might be occurring but very limited amount of fishing in those areas. And this could be maybe considered semi-refuges for some of these pelagic sharks where they're not exposed to as much fishing pressure as they are compared to other places. And the main result from this study, is there any real conclusive result that you guys found? I don't want to be too broad because, you know, I guess, yes, the main result is that a lot of different shark species have a large overlap with fisheries from the high seas, but that can vary between species and also vary between location. But broadly, the main finding is really that showcased how much overlap there is between shark distribution and pelagic fisheries. Could you explain to some of the listeners what the high seas actually are? Sure. The high seas is typically referred as international waters. Mm-hmm. So anything that isn't part of a country that doesn't have any regulation linked to a specific country is the high seas. Mm-hmm. And that's typically anything beyond 200 nautical mile from a country's coastline. Mm-hmm. Which species of shark were of most concern in terms of their overlap with these fishery areas? Actually, the shortfin mako was one of the species that uh, was exposed to a lot of pelagic longline and Mm -hmm. not all around the world, but more specifically in the Northern Hemisphere in the Atlantic. This actually also coincides with some documented decline of shortfin mako populations. Mm -hmm. So we're at a stage now where scientific evidence that shows that the population is declining mm-hmm. and also to show the high amount of overlap between its distribution in those regions and long-line pelagic fisheries. Really, this highlights some concerns and that some changes needs to be made to try to avoid the population to become depleted. Yeah, exactly. Just for the listeners that aren't too familiar with fishing methodologies, could you explain how long lines work? Yeah, so long lines are basically, uh, as the name suggests, uh, a long line uh, that can be several Ks and sometimes I think several tens or hundreds of Ks where you've got a large number of hooks depending on the type of long line every three or every 10 meters. Mm -hmm. And obviously at the end of the hook, you've got a bait and you can target different species for this long line. Typically, sharks are not always targeted. Um, These long lines typically target billfish or tuna. But whilst long lines can be be good at targeting the target species, Mm -hmm. uh, you can also have bycatch, which is basically when a non-target species is caught. Mm -hmm. And one of the main bycatch of these long lines can be sharks, like blue sharks or, for example, mako sharks. That's where the issue is, Mm -hmm. is that these sharks are not not always specifically targeted, but they're still caught, they still die from it, and that can have an effect on the population. A lot of guests have already told us that fishing in general is the largest threat to shark populations. Is the longlining the largest contributing force to that threat? It's certainly one of the large ones. And again, I find it sometimes difficult and maybe dangerous to overgeneralize. Mm-hmm. It really depends on what species you're talking about and what area you're talking about. So mm-hmm. certainly there'll be, there'll be many parts of the world where the main concerns for shark population is long line but at the same time there's other parts of the world where another fishing method be having a large impact on shark population as well so you know we do have to be careful with over generalization and that's one of the things that as scientists you really have to look at what is the main issue depending on which area you are Mm -hmm. 
Is there any good news from the paper, any discoveries that you guys found? Yeah, it's it's not all doom and gloom. Um, there yeah. are areas that have found with lots of different shark species distributed in area where fishing is not that intense or there is limited fishing effort. Mm-hmm. So, for example, just around southern Australia, uh, mm-hmm. the Great Australian Bite Basin is one of these areas that is a bit of a hotspot in terms of pelagic shark species, mm-hmm. uh, but at the same time, a very limited amount of pelagic fisheries. So, this is a what could be considered to some extent a bit of a refuge for these pelagic sharks, white sharks, brown whalers, blue sharks, mako sharks, and thresher sharks. Because mm-hmm. while they are in this area, they are less likely to be caught or less likely to be exposed to some of these pelagic fisheries. So it doesn't mean that when they leave, they might be exposed to some of the location, but whilst they're around here, they're actually relatively safe. That's really good to hear about South Australia. So that's that's awesome. I want to also ask about your opinion on the benefit of large international collaborations like this. Nowadays, again, with the, the way technology is, we actually are getting a huge amount of data. It's what we call the era of big data. Mm-hmm. And I think it is time to to reflect on how much data is already available. And instead of just trying to get more and more, this many times there will be data already there that can be used for different purposes. And I think that's where doing this kind of global international study, we can use some of the data already collected mm-hmm. and do a global study that you know maximizes the resources, maximizes what we can find out from this data, mm-hmm. but also the ability to do it at a global level enables to highlight area that requires action the most, areas that can be refuges. So it really all depending on your question, but the, the ability to have all of these data is really helpful to make global assessment of species or to be able to compare between different regions. With all this information that you guys have collated with your study about the overlap of fishing activities with these ecologically important shark hotspots, is there any management procedures that that was recommended in the study and any management procedures that you would recommend in areas like the high seas that are international waters? I think it will really depend on the location and where in the high seas you're referring to. There mm-hmm. certainly are places where protected areas can make a big difference. And sometimes you do need this kind of protection to ensure that no vessel goes in this area and for sharks but at the same time it's not the only management regulation option and it's not always the silver bullet that will fix all the problems either and in some places even if you do put one of these protected areas if you cannot ensure compliance and illegal fishing still occur you're not achieving much at all in those areas then it might be better to put some specific fisheries regulation to manage those fisheries Mm -hmm. to ensure that the catch is sustainable and to basically keep fishing those areas, but at a level that does not affect shark population. So I think in summary, it really depends on the location. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a range of management tools available in terms of either limiting how much fishing goes in or limiting how much is being caught. Uh, mm-hmm. but there's also protected areas available as well. And it, it will really depend on the location and the situation. How about subsidies given to commercial vessels uh, fishing in these areas? 
You're entirely right. That's another way of reducing fishing. Subsidies can work. They're not always successful, but they have been very successful in some areas, um, mm-hmm. especially when fishers are trying to actually stop fishing. <laughs> Typically, they can be very happy with uh, subsidies being put forward. Mm-hmm. The only subsidies we're using in South Australia is when they close an area, they just basically buy out uh, fishing licenses of the people working in those areas. After your study and everything that they've learned, if there was no action taken, what would happen? Considering the amount of overlap between some of the species, like, for example, short tree mako in, in Northern Hemisphere and, and in the Atlantic, and the amount of fish pressure that they're exposed to, and based on the already documented decline in this population, if nothing happens, those populations will continue to decline and potentially getting to the point of them being depleted and basically really requiring some kind of protection to change that. Uh, so, Charlie, is there any advice you would give to early career scientists and people that wanted to study sharks? Yeah, just be motivated, passionate, and don't give up. Um, obviously, it is a competitive area. There's now an increasing amount of people that are interested and are trying to follow that passion. But if you can make yourself stand out from the crowd and be passionate and motivated, you will get a career and you will get a job out of it. I know that some people are worried about it, but it's certainly doable. All of my students are getting jobs. So it's difficult, competitive, but it's possible and just do it. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie. And if you could get one message out there about sharks and the ocean in general... What would that be? Try to learn about the ocean and sharks as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And then you can make up your own mind about what you think would be helpful. And chums, that's a wrap. As a surfer and a diver myself, I thought this interview was of particular interest as Charlie was able to really clarify a few things regarding cage diving and shark deterrence. Hopefully you're able to get an idea of how important it is to scientifically test shark deterrent products and also an idea around the current concerns in the high seas with the overlap between shark populations with commercial fishing zones. I'll be sharing that big collaborative study online as well as some of the footage that Charlie's taken in the field so make sure to check out the Murky Waters podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. Recently, there was a review by CITES, and they reviewed some threatened shark and ray species, including the shortfin Marco shark. And I'll be interviewing a guest about this topic in the next few episodes, so stay tuned for that. This podcast is created by Michael Heltzinger, but it wouldn't happen without your support. So, thank you for listening today. Please share the podcast around, and if you want to be Jawson, subscribe to the podcast with Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions, feel free to send me a message and please, please leave a review. It only takes a couple of seconds and it'd be fantastic to hear what you think. Thank you to ORFM. You guys are legends and everyone else who has helped out so far. Special mention to the musician Molly Devine, who created the brilliant preface music at the start and she's recently released her own EP. So make sure to check out Molly Devine online if you like that music track. And finally, a last thank you to Dr. Charlie Hoovenears, our exceptional guest today. Thanks, Charlie, for coming on the show and sharing some of the fascinating research that you've been a part of. Take care, people, of both yourselves and the planet, and I'll see you next episode.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.